It's Wednesday, August 11th, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm Yeri Jero, the host of America's world-class web game, Empire Jeopardy! Today's contestants, he's a vertical urban farmer from Battered, Washington. Meet Jack Browndart. How's it going, Jack? It's growing, Mr. Jero. Up and up and up. He's the commander of former intelligence in Syncom Dread Sand AFPAC in Hintsville, Arkansas. Meet Lieutenant Colonel Butter Braunschweig. Colonel, what is Syncom Dread Sand AFPAC? Well, I wasn't in long enough to find that out, Yuri. She's a loan denier for Windjammer Gogol in Jockey Shorts, Illinois. Meet Swendaloo Zimmer. Working hard, Swendaloo? Saying no is becoming a real growth business, Mr. Jerome. Well, the rules are as simple as our contestants. Win two and we talk. Lose two and you walk. Tie and you try again next time. Here we go. 221,943,567. What's a number large enough to confuse people? Uh, what is the cost of a B1 stealth fuselage? What is the number of barrels of oil that BP has spilled into the Gulf as of an hour ago? One for you, Jack. I see you stay on top of things. Okay, here we go again. Hiding billions of dollars of debt by not selling what you don't want until you get it back. What is window dressing? That was fast, Swindaloo. Easy. I used to date one of the Lehman brothers when I worked at B of A. Well, we're down to it now. Swindaloo and Jack, maybe we talk. Butter Braunschweig, maybe you walk. Here it is. Red cloak for breakfast. What's the latest gluten-free diet? What is taken in early meeting with the cardinal? What is the Hopi symbol of the cataclysmic purification of America? Bingo! <laughs> yeah, we talked about it all the time at Dreadset. Well, you'll get to talk some more about it because you tied it up and you'll all be back next time on Empire Jeopardy! I'll bring a PowerPoint with me. I love this music. It makes me so happy. <laughs> you know, the front end of this show and the back end of this show is slightly Japanese. Very slightly well, Japanese. Well, very slightly, I guess. That's the sound Chinese. of David Osman, our co-host. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. You're up on Radio Free Oz. And Dave, you know, if things just get too hard here on um, Whidbey Island yeah. to do the show, although yeah. it's perfect, I'm only, only speculating because it's a crazy future, we could... We could relocate to Ice Island. Ice Island. Oh, yeah, Ice mm. Island. An Ice Island four times larger than Manhattan and up to 600 feet tall has broken off the world's northernmost glacier, a University of Delaware researcher reports. Ooh, I bet that made a big noise. <laughs> it calved. This calving. Calving, right? right, yeah, yeah. The chunk of Arctic ice that calved off Greenland's Peterman Glacier is the biggest in almost... <clears throat> 50 years. Now, it's, it's four times bigger than Manhattan and more parking. Than <laughs> yeah, a lot more parking, but it's 600 feet up. Right. right. The, the icy isle is at least 100 square miles and as thick as the up to half the height of the Empire State Building, according to a university news release. And at least three times the size of metropolitan Detroit. Absolutely. Measured solely in football field lengths. In mid-July. You're a man <laughs> of statistics, Dave. In mid-July, other scientists on a Greenpeace ship predicted the calving, the Sydney Morning Herald reported. They said that altogether 500 billion metric tons of ice was set to crumble from the glacier. Wait, while you're up, will you get me like a grant with ice? Yeah, yeah. Ocean warming currents are circulating around the fjord here and eroding the underbelly of Peterman Glacier at an incredible rate, which is 25 times that of the surface melt, said Alan Hubbard, a glaciologist at the University of Wales. There's been a revelation in the last couple of years in the role that warming oceans play in the triggering of the enhanced acceleration, breakup, and thinning of these outlet glaciers. A National Ice Center scientist writes in the Washington Post that while iceberg creation is a regular occurrence, the newest is unusual for its size, which is more atypical of Antarctic icebergs. Iceberg? It's the size of a small country, Liechtenstein, floating into the sea. Why? Well, in Australia, <laughs> Australia, though, we just put one of them in our, in our, in our <laughs> gin and tonics every day. Oh, yeah, man. that's uh, Well, we, we certainly could relocate there. I mean, sort of get one of those Minnesota uh, fishing things where they drill a hole way, way mm. down through the ice. And live on top of and it. And live on top of it, yeah, yeah. I had a friend who, who used to go out on that island. They say they created an entire 
town there, you know, during the winter. They'd bring everything out, including a pizza parlor and a whorehouse <laughs> oh. onto the ice. No, I mean, and, and you know, with Minnesotans, oh, yeah, we have the pizza and the whore and the fish. It's all, everything's okay. My idea of purgatory, a little colder <laughs> than purgatory. Maybe purgatory is cold. Uh, but, you know, thinking about this, I was reminded of an article I read just recently. Um in the religious uh, section of the Huff Post, which had said that uh, these end of the worlders, the religious end of the worlders, mm-hmm. and a, f- a few respectable scientists have now come together saying, "Yes, it is the end of the <laughs> this world. Is it, huh? Yeah, we cannot escape what we've done." Two very reputable scientists mm-hmm. are saying, and then of course there's Stephen Hawking saying, "The only way we'll survive is to go to another planet." Well, we're very lucky because we've got a whole bunch of Republicans who will just say no to everything, including, you know, the end of the world. That's right. I forgot. Yeah. No, no, no. End and of it'll the world. go away. That's right. Just like the not me will leave the White House. Well, just like the debt and just like the war and the other war. And, oh, in that other war. And reality itself. There you go. Boy, am I confused. I've been told over and over again, if I remember correctly, that one of the reasons we're in Afghanistan is nation building. Now it turns out the two top Pentagon officials, Defense Secretary Robert Gates and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Michael Mullen, offered nuanced descriptions of why that's not what we're doing. With public support for the nearly eight-year-old long war slipping, both men downplayed the notion that the U.S. was determined to establish a reliable, democratic, and honest government in Afghanistan. That's because it's completely impossible. However, they said some level of competence had to be demonstrated by President Hamid Karzai's government in order for the Taliban to be kept at bay. And I wonder what that level is. We are not there to take on a nationwide reconstruction or construction project in Afghanistan. What we have to do is focus our efforts on those civilian aspects and governance to help us accomplish our security objective, Gates said on ABC's This Week, adding that President Barack Obama's policy towards the country and the conflict is really quite clear. Well, that's enough for me. Just have Gates tell me that everything is really quite clear. I can go back to watching uh, 15-year-old haulers on YouTube showing me their latest stash of mascara and perfume. Hey, why worry? And I don't have to worry about the oil spill because they capped the well. We are in Afghanistan because we were attacked from Afghanistan, not because we want to try and build a better society in Afghanistan. Yeah, we were attacked from Afghanistan. That was a decade ago almost. There's hardly any al-Qaeda left there. What are we doing there? If we want to attack al-Qaeda bases, I guess we ought to be in Sudan or Somalia or Yemen. Oh, wait a minute. We are in Yemen. Okay, with the Obama administration having officially sworn off nation building, it's like swearing off demon rum, at least by that name, Mullen declined to repeat a comment he made a year ago that, to a certain degree, there is some of that going on. These guys are so articulate. There's some of that going on, some of that nation building's happening, like, well, after nine to five, after you're out there, you know, keeping yourself from getting blown up, uh, we go out and build girls' schools in the swamps. Instead, he said it was premature to set specific goals for the governance structure in Afghanistan. These people are completely bewildered. Certainly, the long-term goal is to make sure that the, uh, uh, with respect to the population of Afghanistan, that there is a government, governance structure that treats the people well. They're having trouble with this word governance. They're using it wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> They're using the entire military incorrectly. But to say exactly how that's going to look and... What specifics would be involved? This is Mullen speaking. I, I think it's just way too early. No, Admiral, it's way too late. We use Skype a lot on this program, Dave, as you well know. Yes. We're talking to people also without Skype, it would be really hard to do a lot of these interviews. And the guys that invented Skype, uh, who are now, you know, uh, they're, ref- they're not refugees, fugitives from justice. They, they, Skype comes out of Estonia because the two guys that started it in America are fugitives from federal justice because they started a file-sharing program peer-to-peer called Kazaa. And they were indicted for um, uh, misuse of intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And they had to flee. These are the people who gave us Kazaa and they gave us Skype. Well, 
Kazaa and LimeWire and what used to be called, what was it? was not called Netscape, Netflix. What was it called? Napster. Napster, The one that went down. All of that file sharing thing. Well, it's caused a lot of problems. College students who download music and movies from these so-called peer-to-peer file sharing programs, such as LimeWire and Kazaa, will find themselves cut off when they return to campus this fall. Now, this is, you know, something. Wait a minute. I know. Hold on. Listen, okay. every college across the country must either have installed software to block illegal file, file sharing or have created some other procedure for preventing it. The requirement is part of the 2008 Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which took effect in July. This is like the sheriff's men ASCAP BMI. Yes, too. absolutely. 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 Yeah, and, yeah. and they're really working it, man. There was a story in the New York Times, just to interpolate, a story in the New York Times uh, about one of these people from BMI who goes around and collect stuff and yeah well karaoke but this is personal entertainment and you are they are never ever going to stop the flow of quote information end quote of everything it's everything i'm watching this morning and and it's clips from star wars movies accompanied by by this whole review and i they didn't get permission to clip those clips out and go to the... Stu- I mean, it's just crazy. It's right. crazy. Anyway, under the, go, law, go, go under the law, student violators face fines from $750 oh, to $30,000 oh. for each song or movie downloaded. If the court determines the infringement was willful... Willful? What does what? that You mean, mean they actually wanted to see that, that you know, uh, Wycliffe Gene... Uh, well, you know, hey, that the fine can be as much as $250,000, although some judges have reduced higher fines, saying they're unreasonable. School's liability is limited if they cooperate with law enforcement. Sig Heil. Uh-huh. Campus punishments vary. University of North Carolina website lists expulsion as a possible consequence. Vassar requires first-time offenders to perform 20 hours of sanctioned service whatever that means, and pay a $25 fine. Second-time offenders face double the service requirements, double the fines, and loss of Internet access. It goes on and on and on. Only school that stood up to these bastards is UCLA. Uh, A UCLA student caught illegally sharing files in the school's network is locked out and gets a letter from the dean of students. Locked out from the in, from, from the from, internet. From their internet, yeah. Software and songs and movies must be removed from the computer, and students must attend a session explaining why sharing copyright material is wrong. Copywritten material. Uh-huh. Repeated offenders lose internet privileges for the year, so there's no fines and they don't go to hell. Right? Can you imagine those classes on why this is wrong? It's like going to the what comedy traffic school. Well, I went to I, I went to the drunk driving school, which was entirely conducted by a guy from the Marines. You know, I mean, it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for you know, not not that I was a drunk driver, but that was the one that they give all the prospective uh, drivers like Preston, and I had to go with him, and oh, we just uh, oh, okay. Get, anyway, go ahead. Despite all the risk associated with file sharing, students will keep downloading, says Christopher Palmer, twenty-two, a senior at LaSalle University in Philadelphia, who was caught using file sharing programs this past school year. People will always find a way around things. Palmer says he has. He's moved off campus and away from the school security system, okay? And there will be other ways, believe me. The sheriff's men cannot find Robin Hood. You know, you know, Peter, when I was in college, the only file sharing that went on was between girls in the girls' dorm. The House of Representatives will soon be called back into session to take up a $26 billion bill designed in part to help avoid teacher layoffs, says House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Yes, they're going to come back to help uh, keep our schools from being empty. Kids go back. It's back from school. We've got all our nice clothes and our knapsacks and our hand-me-downs. The only thing that's missing is the teacher. As millions of children prepare to go back to school, many in just a few days, the House will act quickly to approve this legislation once the Senate votes, said Pelosi. By the way, she called the members back by Twitter. She tweeted them. Can you imagine what John Bomer felt like if he's even got one of those personal digital assistants? Uh, There's one called the Droid. That's perfect for him, particularly if it has a breathalyzer on it. I am calling members of the House back to Washington at the beginning of the week to pass this bill and send it to the President Obama without further delay, said Pelosi. The House had begun its summer break and was not expected to return until mid-September. Surprise! We need you back to do something useful. House Democratic leaders began discussing the unusual move after the Senate unexpectedly 
inexplicably advanced the state assistance bill on its agenda. Right. They got around the, they somehow got around the NOP. I don't know how. The House needs to approve the measure before it can go to President Barack Obama to be signed into law. House Republican leaders characterized the House plan as the latest step in an agenda rejected by the public. You know, that's really interesting. You know, they say the public doesn't like this, they don't like that, and then they go poll the public, and the public does like it. But again, who's to keep the GOP from lying? It's not against the law unless you're under oath. Uh, The American people don't want more stimulus spending, says the Republicans, particularly spending for labor unions attached to a job-killing tax increase, said Michael Steele, a spokesman for House Minority Leader John Bomer. Wait a minute. What's this job-killing tax increase? Democrats would be better off listening to their constituents who are asking, where are the jobs, rather than returning to Washington, D.C., to vote for more tax hikes and special interest bailouts. This is the most confused thinking. It's very hard to keep up with these people. One, I think that they're vastly uneducated. They have not paid their syntax. They can't put a good sentence together. But wait a minute. They're being called back. So indeed, they can bail out the schools. It is state assistance. So there is indeed a cost involved. But it is a job increasing. Where are the jobs? Here are the jobs. These bunnies. I mean, I just don't know. We, we, we need somebody to go, some sort of like legitimate, reasonable, grim reaper to just go through and cut off all of the bad heads in the party. Of course, that's, that's just an image. Hello, dear friends. This is Reverend Bill Barnstormer of the First Blameless Church of Science. Fiction. And let's say thank you for that. Today, dear friends, let us also say thank you to the naysayers among us. To those who put a stop to progress and change. You know, change is a dangerous slogan. In this troubled world, change means to give up your righteousness. Change threatens the family. Change isn't in the Constitution. It's in the Declaration of Independence, and we went through all of that long ago. So to say no to everything is to make no mistakes, and let's say thank you for that. No closes that open door to your inner office. Say thank you. No inspires your co-working man or woman to say no to, out of respect and risk to continued employment. Thank you. No lets you off the hook. As the good booklet says, park and lock it, not responsible. No good turn goes unpunished, so no frees you from having to learn anything you don't need or don't want to think about. So be a naysayer, if you got the strength. Remember, dear friends, ideas may appear useful, but they could be wrong. You don't want to go there. This is Bill Barnstormer. Please send for my new Naysayers Workout DVD. It lets you do that bike thing while you learn the story of Ulysses and St. Anthony, who said no to the voluptuous demons of temptation and new ideas. And it tells the story of our confusing America today and, and lets you exercise your no to the elite minorities who lack the righteousness to say no. And instead they cry out, good idea, let's try it. <sighs> $29.99 to naysayers. Box no, that's mine. Arizona 246810. So Nancy has tweeted the boys back to the house, right? And when they return to rubber stamp the Senate's $26 billion state aid package, Democrats, according to Politico, will be taking a political crapshoot. Well, there's been a lot of people crapping and shooting in Washington for a long time. I'm tired of getting crapped on, and I'm tired of watching all the good ideas get shot down. So it's time the Democrats took a real crapshoot. 
Even though party leaders expect that approval will be a slam dunk, some early responses from rank-and-file Democrats have raised red flags about the optics of returning to a special session to vote on more spending, even if it's framed as saving teachers' jobs. Yawn, yawn. You want to worry about too much spending? Teachers' jobs is not the place to worry, my man. Let's get rid of, like, one B-1 bomber and educate the West Coast. The risk for Democrats, as they seek to bolster their flagging election prospects, is that some of their vulnerable members will feel like they have to walk the plank yet again on a politically unpopular economic stimulus agenda while reminding voters of their failure to handle routine budget work this year. Really? What about these flagging prospects? I've been reading some very interesting stories that saying it's much too early to tell how people are really going to feel about the midterms. It's early August. It's hot everywhere here, but on Growler Island, where it is so cold, I had to wear a sweater to work this morning. People are having their, their beans baked. They really don't care about the election right now. Anyway... Uh, the Democrats are cranky about this abrupt interruption to their campaign and vacation schedule. I wish I could just clean my glasses with all my crocodile tears. They're wishing the House and Senate would have cut a deal weeks ago, but they don't want to cross Speaker Nancy Pelosi publicly. You know, you don't want to cross Nancy Pelosi publicly, privately, virtually, or even in your dreams. You will certainly have many vulnerable and frontline Dems really upset about coming back because the Senate told them to when they feel they are already defending their seats because of the Senate inaction over the last year and a half. And that's a reasonable thought. The, the Senate has not been able to ride over the NOP. I mean, who would expect an entire minority, 40 seats, time after time again to say no to anything that the majority proposes? Are people really aware of this? No, I think basically, as we'll see later, all they're interested in is telling us that Obama wasn't born in the United States. Still, legislative failure seems unlikely and would be an acute embarrassment for the majority party in the Senate. The measure was approved uh, quickly by all Democrats and two Republicans from Maine after weeks of negotiations. So then you've got Snow, what is it, Olympia Snow, and is it Susan Collins? Uh, Yeah, the two ladies from Maine who just can't see themselves not voting teachers back into work. It's just impossible for them to go along with all those Oh, those male crapheads. House Democratic leaders see the measure as a win-win that will be worth the hassle of hurting their members back to Washington. They expect final action on a bill that creates jobs and responds to urgent state needs by closing tax loopholes and without adding to the federal deficit, and they contend they will gain political chits. Democrats support the urgent resources needed for the education of our children, the health of our families, and the safety of our neighborhoods, Pelosi said in a statement. Congressional Republicans demean educators and first responders responders as special interests and prefer to see teachers, nurses, and police officers on the unemployment line instead of in our classrooms, in emergency rooms, and on the beat. Republicans, whose expected opposition may create some political risks of their own, contend that the brief break in the August recess will reinforce the Democrats' haphazard and ineffective approach to the recession and the continuing high unemployment. House Minority Leader John Bomer called the bill, which will subsidize teacher and Medicaid costs, a payoff to union bosses and liberal special interests. Does he really think that's going to sell? If he's right, if John Suntan King Bomer is right, and old Peter here is wrong, which of course is possible in the scheme of things, then I'm really, really going to have to rethink my whole idea of where the American electorate is at. I don't like that prospect. As you can see, this car has been fully equipped with a complete line of extras designed with your mind in mind. Here, for instance, an all-weather climate control in red, blue, or green with a special oxygen danger indicator level. Gee whiz. And here, of course, your own personal remote control picture-sized color TV with matching brass knob. Just reach above the bar and press the button right there under the handy laminated imitation mason at Wild West Gun Rack with a look of real wood for the channel of your choice. This is from one of my favorite blogs, Talking Points Memo. Chuck DeVore, a California state legislator and Tea party back candidate for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate, which means, of course, he's a wacko, has a new web video claiming that Jack Bauer, the protagonist of the action-adventure show 24, would support him for Senate. He quote, yeah. The, the, the appropriate tense we're talking in here is would. Would. Okay. 
Ask yourself this question, Jack Bauer fans. Which person would Jack want as his U.S. senator? The announcer says, Barbara Boxer, a Guantanamo closing, tax raising, big government growing, ultra liberal who reads Miranda rights to foreign terrorists. Whoa. Or Chuck DeVore, a U.S. Army Reserve intelligence officer who likes Guantanamo Bay as it is, thinks foreign terrorists should have an interrogator, not a lawyer, and supports lower taxes and smaller government. Okay. Okay, this is. Uh, I, I, I return to the future conditional tense into which this, this wonderful this, ad is written. This man yeah. should be put in a tent from which he should not, you know, you know come a, back. A really conditional future tent, tense. Yeah. 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 No, wait a minute. But, but, but read, that, read that line again, because that's, that's, that's copywriting. Yeah, well, that is. We'll, we'll go on. No, okay. want me to read, no, All right. Of course, it should be noted yeah. that Jack Bauer is a fictional character portrayed by actor Keith or, Keith or Sutherland in real life. Yeah. Sutherland is a Canadian Democratic Socialist whose grandfather, the late Saskatchewan Premier Tony Douglas, was the founder of his country's single-payer health care system. The real-life Kiefer Sutherland remains a staunch supporter of his grandfather's left-wing New Democratic Party and is a vocal advocate for single-payer health care. You know, so my gosh! Uh, so the Tea Party man's got it all wrong. Tea Party man. Well, now give now. Okay, one more time with his slogan because right. his slogan is just unbelievably well well no, I, written. I, I think I, it has a lot of hyphens in it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ask yourself this question: Which person would Jack want as his U.S. senator? Barbara Boxer, a Guantanamo closing, tax raising, big government growing, ultra liberal who reads Miranda rights to foreign terrorists, there or Chuck is. DeMore, a U.S. Army Reserve intelligence officer who likes Guantanamo Bay as it is, thinks foreign terrorists should have an interrogator, not a lawyer, and supports lower taxes and smaller government. Well, there is one thing to be said. Yep. Is that the character of Jack Bauer never smiles. So that's good for a no, Tea Party candidate. No, I know. He talks like this. Uh-huh. I heard a little bit of him the other day, and he just talks like this all the time. Even, well, even when he's gutting people, he just talks like this. Well, yeah. I, I watched him, you know, yeah. and I said, gee, you know, uh, to my girlfriend, I said, you know, he never smiles. The next day, there's an article in the New York Times about a young man who got taken on as a writing consultant for 24. He came in with this dynamite idea about Jack telling a joke, and they said, no, doesn't work. Uh, no irony. There'll be no irony on this show. Well, not only is there no irony, I want to point out to all you 24 fans that they have, they have gunfights, they have firefights on every show with lots of automatic weapon and no ricochets and nothing. No ricochets. People hiding behind dumpsters with people unloading M15s into them. No ricochets. Nothing gets shredded. They are such cheap sons of guns. Well, I think you've just motivated us to go down and, and listen to that conference room there at, uh, at uh, you know, Paranoid Pictures. Because there's a meeting going on, we should check in on it. With his newfound prominence as the author of a law that ignited a national firestorm over immigration, Arizona State Senator Russell Pierce hopes to keep fanning the flames of the issue long after the courts uphold or strike down his SB 1070. That legislation focused attention on how far Arizona police can go in determining the immigration status of anyone they suspect of being in the country illegally. Oh, just shades of Nazi Germany. Now Pierce, a deputy sheriff before entering politics, has a new target, the children of illegal immigrants. Oh, Mr. Himmler, rock on. The way he sees it, he's simply protecting taxpayers from those who are abusing public benefits like schools and and hospitals. Blame the parents, Pierce says in an interview with Politico. They're breaking the law and you can't reward them. Pierce said he plans to introduce a bill next year requiring that illegal immigrants pay for their kids to attend public schools. But that means you'd have to come into the school to pay for your kid being there because you're illegal. But of course, they can then stop you for being illegal and send you to jail and separate you from your kids. This doesn't make any sense. But of course, it isn't supposed to make any sense. It's supposed to punish the not me. And last month, he signaled he would author legislation to deny birth certificates to so-called anchor babies, the U.S.-born children of illegal immigrants. Of course, he's not alone. The, uh, this idea is already gaining traction among top Senate Republicans, like South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham said last week that uh, he may introduce a constitutional amendment to retool birthright citizenship. This is Lindsey Graham, the man that people are saying is the, is the middle-thinking, perhaps he's a rational Republican. No, no, he's a silver-haired racist. 
and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a man with no chin of Kentucky, along with Arizona's two senators, John Dangfence McCain and John Keel, said this week they'd like to see congressional hearings on the subject. Well, I'd like to see both John, both Johns, one H in and the other without an H, in the public stocks for even thinking that. By now, Opponents in Arizona know they can't underestimate Pierce's ability to mobilize anger over the immigration issue. Democrats have to understand if we don't start dealing with a solid reform package pretty soon out of this Congress, then we give the wingnuts like Russell Pierce the opportunity to not only introduce legislation, but mobilize people and keep this issue constantly on the front burner, said Representative Paul Grijavala, whose sprawling district sits on the U.S.-Mexican border. It's a political tactic he's used since 2000. And, he said, now it's got legs. Indeed, Pierce has been waging an unforgiving war against illegal immigrants, invaders, he calls them, for the better part of a decade. I wonder if he sees them as space invaders, maybe in one of his stupors, drug, alcohol, or just bad thinking induced. He he kind of like made this collage of aliens and invaders. Hmm, maybe they are from outer space, sucking up all our, our precious resources and our precious bodily fluids. In 2004, he led the successful campaign for Proposition 200, a voter initiative barring illegal immigrants from receiving state and local public benefits. Two years later, voters approved another Pierce initiative denying bail for illegal immigrants who commit serious crimes. Let them rot in jail! And though it stalled in 2008, Pierce introduced a bill banning students at Arizona's public universities and colleges from forming groups based on race. Why don't we take a great big knife and just cut it all around Arizona and then put a big magnet on it and lift it up and send it somewhere else? You've heard how terrorists plan to have babies born in the United States, then sent abroad to be trained and coddled into terrorists, only to return 20 to 30 years later to destroy our way of life. Well, you don't have to wait 20 or 30 years to enjoy the over-the-border taste of Anchor Baby Beer. Our secret? It's a foreign yeast that's been brought over to America, coddled and fermented until it wakes up to the call of action. Hey, it won't destroy your way of life, only your taste for any other brew than Anchor Baby Beer. Anchor Baby, a product of Blackout Brewery's Oath Keeper, Nevada, now legal in 38 states. The government's your friend, you see. That's what I have to say, or they will bury me. Don't you try to criticize, and don't you ever try to talk about their lies. I don't know what you've been told, but last time I checked, we had the right to say the things we mean and disagree and not have to face the guillotine. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just picked the wrong side of the revolution. Patriot Act is the riot act with the PAT. What the really means is that they're watching you and that they're really watching me. And anyone who disagrees is sure to lose their liberties. A patriot has got to keep his mouth shut. But if it's your head in the basket, then you just pick the wrong side of the revolution. King and his army wing, they are hell-bent on the conquest Our enemies on bended knees, they're gonna see it always soon Because the freedom that they steal from us, they try to export overseas And now our former enemies are free to live a life of tyranny the same as you or me And it's a crime to speak your mind And it's a crime, If you heard that plate is gonna fall 
shithole called Guantanamo Where the people who we cannot trust Are safely kept away from us Well, we never have to worry if they're guilty or not Because we stick them in a cell and they're soon forgotten And they're out of sight and out of mind and out of luck But if it's your head in the basket Then you just picked the wrong side of the revolution You choose a side to fight Forget about who's wrong or right If you like your neck You best as heck start Rooting for the winner This brave new world Is knocking at your door And you better let it in The Constitution's evolution Never made a contribution To the revolutionary man It's a crime To speak your mind And it's a crime Former Senator Gary Hart, that was the the good-looking playboy who challenged the press to follow him during one of his affairs and ended up losing his political career over it. And former CIA Director James Woolsey have launched a speaking tour to underscore the connection between energy dependence and global security. Both spoke with Newsweek's Daniel Stone about the growing threat and why domestic development isn't the answer. Question, how would you characterize a link between energy policy and national security? Here's Gary Hart. I would encourage your readers to check out a website called CNA.org. These are retired senior officers in the military who draw a direct connection between changing climate and a threat to our international security. Another website for a whole lot of information is climateandnationalsecurity.com. There you will find all kinds of resources documenting the connection between our national security and a changing climate. So, uh, Stone says, so uh, what's the key problem? And here's Wolseley, former head of the CIA. This, this is heartening. The heart of the matter is oil. Coal is a problem from the point of CO2 emissions and pollution, but oil is a problem for those reasons and for reasons of national security, in that our billion dollars a day that we borrow to import oil finances institutions like the Saudi Wahhabi schools around the world that teach little boys murderous hatreds of Shiite Muslims, Jews, homosexuals, and apostates, not to mention hatred of Americans and the terrible oppression of women. And it helps fund murderous dictators around the world. We're paying for that, and it's nonsense. We need to stop using oil, not not just imported oil, but oil, period, in order to move away from that kind of thing. Woolsey, you go, man. You ran the CIA and you got your head on straight. Hey, gives me a glow. So now Stone says, how specifically does that limit our foreign policy options? And Woolsey says, look, I don't think President Obama would have bowed down to the ruler of Saudi Arabia if if he, this ruler of Saudi Arabia, didn't have the oil to the degree that he does. I, I think they and other producing states, almost all of whom except Norway and Canada, are dictatorships or autocratic systems, have thrown their weight around because of oil. That creates national security problems here. Stone says, isn't one solution to simply increase U.S. development in order to rely less on unfriendly regimes? And Woolsey says, that does not work. All that does is improve the balance of payment situation. If we improved our domestic production so 10% of our imports went away, then we'd only be borrowing $900 million per day rather than a billion dollars. It improves our balance of payments, but that's all it does because the low-cost producers and the high-volume producers are in the Middle East. They run the cartel. They run the conspiracy called OPEC. So we are we can only do a little bit. We need to move away from oil, period. Hart says, in terms of the impact of climate on our security, the fact of the matter is that we have to move to a post-carbon economy. We should have begun this 25, 30 years ago. If we had, we'd be much more secure today, both economically and militarily, and spiritually, by the way. And it's not too late. The very basic facts of nature are going to require it. This is a very interesting statement. I like this guy, Woolsey, and he's right. We have to move away from oil. No easy thing, but alcohol is the answer. 
alcohol is the fuel to which we can convert with the least problem and and that we can do the most at home. We have the resources here to produce enough alcohol to run every car in this damn country. 95% of all cars run in Brazil, and that is a huge company, are run on alcohol. Henry Ford's Model T, his original cars were run on alcohol. It was only the rise of kerosene through John uh, Rockefeller that things changed. Alcohol is the answer. It can be a gas. This is uh, David Osman. I'm on the road for Radio Free Oz here in Gay Paris. And I'm beside the runway here at the celebrated Salon of the notoriously controversial haute couture designer Yves Sansstuhl. <laughs> Bonjour, Yves. Welcome to my Salon, David. Uh, we have just a moment before the showing starts for my latest collection, Toxique. Toxique, huh? Well, Eve, you're probably best known for your squid <laughs> agony boots. You you introduced them at your first salon back then in uh, 1980, right? Well, I have them here in the case, the, the prototype of the agony boot. Oh, that's the look of the 80s, the cowboy styling. The fashion of President Reagan. He may have been brain dead, but the man knew how to wear that cowboy look. Uh-huh, and this exotic leather. Polar bear hides, the stripes of the Komodo dragon. Uh-huh, and this a very high heel, uh, lucite with the flashing lights. Well, the beautiful lights were made by the agony of the squid uh-huh. who emits the electric pain every time the wearer steps on the heel, compressing this little petite mollusk. Oh, wow. And, but you had to take him off the market. Peter brought me down. Uh, I told them that the squid has a happy life safe in the heel of the Reagan boot, but they put a picket line in front of my door. What, what could I do? Well, I, I see the showing's about to begin here. Uh, the audience is very excited. You can tell me, uh, what are we going to see today in your show? Toxique uh-huh. presents disaster fashions. Uh-huh. As you know, I normally design for the humans, but with the crisis in the Gulf, I, I have turned my attention to clothing for the aquatic victims of this man-made tragedy. Mm. Oh, so dommage. <laughs> it is for Yves stool to make it right for the pauvre animaux, n'est-ce pas? Oh, well, oh, and here, here comes your first model. The exotic beauty Giselle showing my fabulous oil-repellent pelican briefs made from the freshly recycled wild bird feathers, a form-fitting, as you see, for the natural look of nature in the raw. Oh, that's timely, timely, Eve. And, and here comes your model, Raffaella. Ooh. She is wearing my dolphin slicker. Everyone knows the dolphin doesn't look so good coated in oil, so I've designed the tight-fitting sailor costume of oil-free oil cloth with a self-sealing flap for the blowhole. Oh, uh-huh, <laughs> that's very, very thoughtful. Okay, now this next model, Lauren well, Hutton, yeah. showing the turtle shell by shell. Turtles and models can all live forever with this tropical carapace of million-year-old ivory hand-carved by Froggy Island Boys. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, this must be the finale. It's uh, the, the bridal costume. Is that... For the first time, I show the bride in bed. Oh. The pollution-free happy oyster bed. I begin with a mattress of clean sand covered with the 700-count hazmat on the bottom, uh-huh. then spill-repellent cover-up linens, uh-huh. the fluffy pillows and duvet boom are stuffed with clippings from famous Hollywood poodles and gaga wings. Oh. And finally, the green war sham, sham for complete protection in the season of the hurricane. Well, well, uh, that sounds like a, a thrill. But the bride herself, uh, can you describe her outfit? Of course, uh-huh. Imani is dressed as a prototype of the jumper jail suit in Florida orange with stripes of bio blue. Oh, it looks pretty rugged. It has to be. I'm making it for the president of BP, Tony Hayward. <laughs> he will have to wear it a long, long time. Well, everybody seems very enthusiastic about that. Congratulations on your non-toxic showing. Yves Sansstuhl for Radio Free Oz. This is David Osman in Paris. Au revoir! This from USA Today. Talk among fishermen at this BP staging point in Shell Beach, Louisiana each morning is a good barometer of the local mood. Early in the crisis, shrimpers and oystermen recruited for cleanup work fretted that the leak would never stop. Then they worried they wouldn't get paid. Today, fishermen hear voice of fear that with the well nearly plugged, their steady BP paychecks may start disappearing. So they're screwed anyway you look at it. Quote, we don't know how long it'll be before we get back to work fishing, says Dami Campo, 46, an oysterman working for BP. We look at what happened in Alaska, and they're just starting to fish now. We're talking Exxon Valdez. That'd be a long, long time ago. The emotional roller coaster coastal residents have ridden since the spill appears likely to continue even as the well 
is sealed. Many of the fishermen of Lower St. Bernard Parish find themselves in a dilemma, happy that the well may finally be clogged, but worried that it means BP jobs may soon vanish. A boat captain could make two grand a day. As soon as these paychecks stop and you realize you can't do anything, you're going to watch that anxiety and stress go through the roof, said George Barish, a shrimper and oyster fisherman who leads the Louisiana United Commercial Fishermen's Association. Oil disasters often lead to spikes in depression, anxiety, divorce, and post-traumatic stress even years after the event is resolved, says Steve Piku, an environmental sociologist at the University of South Alabama. So we got a lot of this bad stuff to look at down the line. After the Exxon Valdez spill in Prince William Sound, Alaska, fishing communities saw a rise in suicide, divorce, and anxiety for six years after the spill, and symptoms lingered for another 12 years, he says. In this disaster, unlike a hurricane, people cannot be rescued, and there's no way to inventory the damages, he says. You have an unfolding conveyor belt of problems. Unlike the Alaska spill, however, the Gulf already had scores of groups created under Hurricane Katrina to help people recover from this disaster, Piku says. Many are shifting to helping residents deal with the spill. Catholic Charities has opened five mental health centers across the Gulf and treated more than 6,000 people since the spill. You go. It sends counselors to docks and marinas to consul fishermen. Larry Carbo, a Catholic Charities crisis counselor, says many he's spoken to have been drinking more or abusing their spouses. Others have confessed thoughts of suicide if they can't work soon. Many fishermen lack a high school education and struggle with what they'll do if the oil is stopped, but they can't fish, Carbo says. They want to believe it's going to work out, he says, but there's a sense of... What's going to happen now? Oyster fishermen show some of the highest anxiety, Carbo says. Two freshwater diversions opened off the Mississippi River to repel the oil have killed off hundreds of young oysters, throwing future harvests into doubt. Dave Casanova, Shell Beach Oysterman, says nearly two-thirds of his young oysters have died, pushing his earnings back two or three years. Did you hear that, GOP? He's going to be unemployed for two or three years, and of course, you know, he's a slacker. The mental strain of having to support a wife, four daughters, and two grandchildren has been draining. Casanova, 54, says he saves his BP pay for the day the company pulls out and the fishermen are left with dead oyster beds. He says he hopes other fishermen are doing so. The full effect of this spill is going to be felt much, much later. Oil hits the beach. Hello? There's oil on the beach. Secondly, there won't be any people on the beach. Yes! That's a positive. Third thing, I might be able to keep my lights on at night because there won't be any turtles on the beach. The turtles will be smart enough not to show up. And at some point, the beach will fix itself. After years of knocking off luxury products like $2,800 Louis Vuitton handbags, criminals are discovering there is money to be made in faking the more ordinary, like $295 Cuba bags and $140 Ugg boots. In California, the authorities recently seized a shipment of counterfeit Angel Soft toilet paper. Oh my, the times, they are a-changing. They are wiping out the old images. The shift in the counterfeiting industry, which costs American businesses an estimated $200 billion a year, plays to recession-weary customers looking for down-market deals, the authorities say. I'll tell you, black, you know, rip-offs, counterfeits, that's a down-market deal. And it has been fueled in part by factories sitting idle in China. Almost 80% of the seized counterfeit goods in the United States last year were produced in China, where the downturn in legitimate exports during the recession left many factories looking for goods in any way to produce. Now, excuse me, I've been to China twice. I'm not a China expert, but it's not hard to figure out how much control there is in that country. And you ain't going to tell me, Charlie, that they don't know where these factories are, that they don't know where these places are that are knocking off all these goods. And if we don't come down on them hard, $200 billion worth of loss to this counterfeit goods, if we don't take care of that business, then we're colluding with them. The answer Uh, that these Chinese factories, these idle Chinese factories are coming up with, these criminal, you know, cartels, is increasingly knockoffs of lesser-known brands, which are easy to sell on the internet, can be priced higher than obvious fakes, and avoid the aggressive programs by the big luxury brands to protect their labels. Retail companies and customer enforcement gangs, they stay away from all that. 
The traders in mid-price fakes are employing another new trick. By pricing the counterfeits close to retail prices, which they can do when the original product is not too expensive, they entice unsuspecting buyers. Any savvy shopper, for example, knows the Louis Vuitton bag selling for $100 cannot be the real thing. But when NeimanMarcus.com, an authorized retailer of Cuba bags, sells them for $295, and a small website sells them for $190, a deal-hunting consumer could think she has scored a bargain. She hasn't. The $190 bag is a fake. Hey, let me tell you something. A Cuba bag at $295 ain't no bargain either. The counterfeiters are also lifting photos and text from legitimate websites, further fooling some shoppers. The consumer is blind as to the source of the product, says Leah Everett-Burks, a director of brand protection for UGG Australia. Uh, counterfeit websites go up pretty easily, and counterfeiters will copy our stock photos, the text of our website, so it'll look and feel like the company's site, she said. Well, that's just really too bad. What are you going to do, you know? You're turning out $145 boots, and they're good boots. Hey, I've got a pair of Uggs. They work just fine. I went and bought them at a store that said Ugg over them, so I had a pretty good chance of being properly Uggged instead of thugged. Come to the end of another perfect show. They're all perfect shows. What's imperfect about having a good time, man? I mean, <laughs> it, it never goes wrong. But nothing is more perfect than going out with a little tang. That's right. This is Tufu, and I'm sure he was tired of living in a time of war. I'm, Aren't we all? I'm sick of it. Yeah. And this is from 500 Words about my journey from the capital to Feng Sein written just before the Great Rebellion of 755 broke out. Not Feng Sein. Mm. Year's end. The grasses withered, a great wind scouring the high ridges. In bitter cold at midnight, I set out along the Imperial Highway. Sharp frost. My belt snaps. My fingers are too stiff to tie it. Around dawn, I passed the Emperor's favorite winter palace in the Lee Hills by the hot springs. Lots of army banners against the sky, the ground tramped smooth by troops. Thick steam rises from the hot green springs. Imperial guards rub elbows. Cabinet ministers live it up. The music drifts through the wintry landscape. The hot baths here are just for important people, nothing for common folks. The silk the courtiers wear was woven by poor women. Soldiers beat their husbands, demanding tribute. Of course our emperor is generous. He only wants the best for us. I suppose we have to blame his ministers when government is bad. Plenty of good people at the court must be worried especially when they see the palace gold plate carted off by royal relations. Women, like goddesses, are dancing inside, all silk and perfume, guests in sable furs, music of pipes and fiddles, camel-pad broth being served with frosted oranges and pungent tangerines. Behind those red gates, meat and wine are left to spoil. Outside lie the bones of people who starved and froze. Luxury and misery a few feet apart. My heart aches to think about it. Yeah, mine too, Dave. Well, I'm glad I got the Oz team, though. That does make me feel good. It's Peter Bergman, me, your host, Dave Osmond. Me, co-host. Bill McIntyre, our producer, Dave Maloney, our audio engineer, Chaz Glass, our financial whiz, Tom Goodwillow, our webmaster, John Cumming, our ones and zeros consultant, Scott Wilde, keeps it cool in the world of social media, and Phil Fountain, ah, knocks out them beautiful designs. See you all tomorrow, huh? Keep it cool. <laughs>